All right. As you know, we are on our reopening phase three uh, of our plans. So we gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Uh, as you guys know that are here today, you have to RSVP for that, uh, and you can find that all that information and links to RSVP uh, at watermarktampa.com, and that goes along with the We Watermark. So if you want to come with your children, you can uh, RSVP for them as well. Next, our worship team uh, is looking for volunteers. We're looking for a lead worship singers, an electric lead guitarist, and lyric slide op operators. So if you're interested to join the worship team, you can email worship at watermarktampa.com and just include some information about your roles and what you're interested in. Um, and then lastly, we're also looking for we watermark volunteers. So if you have a heart to serve with children and you want to help out, please also sign up to serve at watermarktampa.com slash we dash watermark. All right. And the scripture for today is going to be Revelation 18, 9 through 19. And it says, uh, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see, and, see her, and share her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified of her torment, they will stand far off and cry, woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off. Terrified of her torment, they will weep and mourn and cry out. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all of you who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. All right, I just wanted everybody to just be encouraged by that joyful, <laughs> that joyful passage. There's a piece of tape here that's bothering me. Um, yeah, we're in Revelation today, 18. Um, we were in Mark 16, and I have half a sermon written in Mark 16. Uh, and then, some of my brothers and sisters decided to tarnish the name of Jesus. Um, and so I think we need to talk about a subject we've talked about before, um, many times. And I've, what I found is, um, people don't grasp something until like five or six times of hearing it and they begin to like, an idea begins to find its place in their process of thought. Um, I have talked about Christian nationalism before. I don't like to just stand up and say, it's wrong, don't do it, and then move on. Um, I don't even necessarily need to talk about the subject of Christian nationalism. I just need to talk about the subject of Christians in the empires in which they were living in in the first century for people to understand why Christian nationalism doesn't make sense. 
as a Christian. And so uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, we're going to try to put the events of this week into some perspective. How is the Christian actually supposed to respond? How is, um, when we see what is essentially, and this is going to make some people mad, um, when we see what is essentially a, a Christian insurrection against the nation in which we're living, and we compare that with how we see the early church living, there is a stark contrast that opens up. And so, um, we're in Revelation today. One day I want to preach through the entire book of Revelation, um, but we all should be in the room at the same time for that. Um, that's also what I'm waiting for for the book of Romans. We can't do Romans with 15% of our congregation. Um, you have to have everybody. And the room can't even be set up the same way it was. It has to be, you have to face each other when you read the book of Romans, right? Like, because there's stuff that you have to talk about. And when you read the book of Revelation, you have to face each other um, because you have to be able to find some way to like understand the book of Revelation is for dissidents. That's why it was written. Um, and so one day we'll go through that. I'm going to do a bit of a, of a sample today because I think if you're going to talk about how Christians are supposed to be in an empire, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to act, then the first thing we need to do is go to the end of the book and see how it ends and work backwards from there. Um, and when you do, when you read the book of Revelation, um, especially in verse 18, you see this, this mention of this thing called the lake of fire, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, there are three symbols in the book of Revelation that are the biggest symbols all through the book of Revelation, and these symbols are symbols. They're not literal. They're, they're just symbols. Um, and here are those three symbols. Uh, you have the lamb. There's a lamb. Uh, the, the, the lamb, the author makes very clear the lamb symbolizes Jesus, okay? Never says it by name, but the lamb is Jesus. Uh, and then you have the beast. Now, we tend to think of the beast as like Satan or uh, like a person. But in the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the Jewish idea of, of the world, the construct of the world, the beast uh, is not a singular person. It's an empire. It's a symbol for the empire. And... Um, in the Jewish mind, the beast is exclusively depicts Gentile powers that arise to rage against God's world. Uh, the beast is not Satan. That's not what the author is describing. The beast is the empire and its emperor. It's the whole thing. It's the whole structure. It's the whole system. Um, so when you talk about the beast, that's what that is. It is, whenever you read the ideas of the beast in the scriptures, it's the empire in which the people are living and in which the people have been taken captive and are in exile. Even in the New Testament, the Jewish people believe that they were still exiles. Sure, they're living back in their land again, but they're under the rule of Herod, the half-Jewish king, half-Gentile king, and Roman soldiers are all through the city, which makes it unclean. And so as long as the Romans are there, they are in exile. Their goal was to kick out the Romans, which they tried in about 70 AD, and they failed miserably. Um, and then the last symbol is the lake of fire. What is that? Well, um, chapter 18 it, it talks about, when it talks about the lake of fire, um, there is, chapter 18 is sort of the immediate context of the lake of fire. And in, in Revelation chapter 18, God is judging the empire, okay? It doesn't say which empire because it's not supposed to be a certain empire. It doesn't let any empire off the hook. God is judging the empires of the nations and the people who are ruling over those empires. And God is judging the empire, not 
torturing individuals in the lake of fire. That is not the subject of, of the book of Revelation. It's not about individuals being tortured and thrown in hell. It is structures and systems and empires being brought down, empires which never should have existed in the first place, which exist in opposition to God. Um, it's a structural judgment, not a personal judgment. And so we read passages like Revelation 18, verse 2, verse 5, and verse 9. If you put those together, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Her sins are piled up to the heavens, and God has remembered her crimes. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now, God, in this passage, is waging a holy war, right? Um, This is what he's doing. It is a war on a great city, a human construct. Again, he's not roasting individuals over a flame. He's judging the entire construct. And when this happens, there is weeping and there is wailing and there is gnashing of teeth um, by those individuals whose lives are so heavily invested in the empire that when it falls, they lose everything that they've ever had. They have nothing left when the empire falls. It is a warning against that kind of lifestyle, against wrapping your life and your mind so, up, so wrapped up with the empire in which you live that when it falls, you fall too. Um, It is a stark warning to that. It talks about how when the kings and merchants, those are the the political and economic leaders, the kings and the merchants, uh, when they see the smoke of her burning, it says, it says, they shall wail, exclaiming, there was never a city like this great city. Was there ever a city like this great city? No. And how many nations of the world regularly proclaim exceptionalism? There has never been a city like our city. There's never been a country, an empire like ours, a nation like ours. The type of arrogance that you see from all of the cities of the ancient world, Assyria, Acadia, all of it, the Babylonia, um, the Phoenicians. And the point is this, these people that are weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth, gnashing your teeth is a sign of anger, frustration, it's, um, you're, you're, they're lashing out. Um, these people are not being physically tortured. Uh, God is not physically putting them in physical, physical anguish. It is emotional anguish because their lives were invested in this empire and they're weeping and gnashing their teeth because of everything that they have lost when the empire fell. That is what is happening here. It's linked directly with the Old Testament book of Daniel uh, when Daniel in chapter 7 talks about a river of fire. And there's some symbolism in the river of fire as well in the book of Daniel. You see it says four great beasts. Those are the empires again. Um, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Why does it come out of the sea? If you've been around long enough here, you've heard me talk about the ancient view of the sea. The Israelites were, a, were not a seafaring people. They were terrified of the water, okay? They were a nomad, semi-nomadic people that wandered, uh, and they did agriculture and stuff like that. Um, but they settled near the coast, but they were terrified of water, Every time they go out on the water in the New Testament, something terrible happens and there's a storm and they're freaking out and they call the water the abyss. Why do they call it the abyss? Because the first century Jewish people believed that Satan and his demons and everything all lived in the water and that's where they came from. So every time you see a beast rising up, it's coming up out of the water, out of the abyss. And when Jesus is walking on the water, they look and the passage literally says, they thought he was a ghost. And they're like, ah, a ghost. Why did they think he was a ghost? Because he's like walking on hell. Like, they had this terrifying fear of water. So, when you see the beasts coming up out of the ocean, what they're saying is these empires are terrible. They are the anti-God empires, all of them. 
Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. We go a little farther. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 11. It says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the beast was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and throw it into the blazing fire. So when we read Revelation 18, he's channeling the book of Daniel and he's building off of that in the great Jewish tradition of apocalyptic literature. Stuff that God's people could read and understand and everyone else who gets it and reads it, it doesn't make any sense to them. So you can write these Huge messages to the churches about the beast and the fall of the beast and how the, 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 the empire of Rome will fall, but the kingdom of God will last forever. But you're going to tell it in all kinds of weird stories. And any Roman who gets, like centurion, who gets a hold of the letter, it does, makes no sense. They're like, well, this is a weird letter. You can continue on your way. But the Jewish people read it and they're like, yes, what we are doing is worshiping God over and against our earthly kings. Okay. Um, so you have, you have the lake of fire, you have the river of fire. Now, in the Bible, and I think this is perhaps the most important concept you need to grasp, um, is that there are two cities in the Bible. There are two nations, only two. I know you can just start rattling off nations, but in the minds of the ancient Israelites, there is only two nations. There is Israel, which is sometimes referred to as the city of David or the promised land or the city on a hill or um, talks about him being like the... the the people who live on top of the rock, right? Like the, that's where the, the temple is built on top of the rock. Um, so there's Israel, that is one city. And the other city, the other nation is Babylon. And that refers to every other nation in the world where they lived. All of them fell under the same jurisdiction of Babylon. Babylon is always ruled by the accuser, Satan, right? Like um, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness... The tempter comes to him and says, I will give you all of this. How can he say that? How can he make that claim? Because in the minds of the ancient Israelites and the Jewish people, Satan is in charge of all of those empires, and God is in charge of Israel. Okay? So, um, it consists of Egypt, Rome, Assyria, Babylon, of course. Israel is Israel. Everyone else is Babylon. Babylon exists in direct opposition to the kingdom of God, and since it has no part in the created order, and Bab- then Babylon must fall in order for the kingdom of God to really become truly realized. Babylon must fall, and the kingdom of God will reign forever. That is in the mind of these writers who are writing this text. And so, if we ponder that, if we stop and think about that, how there are two cities, Israel and Babylon, and this is how they've structured their mind in, in the whole thing. This is how they're thinking. Now, when we come into the modern day, uh, when we read the Bible, what do we do? How do we think about the church and how do we think about America? What about now? If there was only two nations, is there still only two nations? Is it like America and then like everyone else? That is what we call Christian nationalism. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But basically, it's, it's really helpful to, when you read the Bible through the lens of like there's only two nations, Israel and Babylon. It's really helpful, helpful to look at the modern la- uh, church, the modern world through this lens as well. There is the church whose king is, is God incarnate in Christ that falls under the label of expanded Israel. When we think of the church, the best way to think of the church is it is the regathering, the, the restoration of Israel under Jesus. You have their king, a kingdom. It has to have a king. It has to have citizens. It has to have land. In the ancient Israelites, it was Yahweh was the king. And then in the... You had Yahweh's king, and then you have all the citizens of Israel are the people, the citizens of the kingdom, and they had land which was Judea, right? But in the minds of the Christians, all of that was expanded. The king is now Jesus, 
That is the one we're following, Yahweh in the flesh. The citizens are all the people of the church, but it's not just the Israelites. It's expanded to include all Gentiles who worship Jesus in full allegiance as their king. They have faith and allegiance in Christ. And then there is the, what about the land? Where does God reign? It's the whole world, the whole earth he has made his footstool. Um, and so when we think about two cities, there are now, in the mind of the early Christians, two cities, Israel and Babylon. The church is Israel. Everything else is Babylon. Everything. Um, and so that's how we should think of it. The United States of America doesn't fall under the label of Israel. It does not. And that is perhaps the biggest misunderstanding in American evangelicalism. It is that somehow God is setting up America as the promised land, and he is not. That was never the plan. In the minds of the early Christians, America is Babylon. That is where we are living. And at some point, we have crossed the wires and confused everything to think that the center of God's work is our country in the world. But it's not. The center of God's work is God's church. Many Americans view America as Israel, not as Babylon. If you look at things like the Jericho March, what are they doing? They're blowing shofars, right, as if they are Israel, claiming the land. They are marching around buildings as if God is going to give them that, as if that is their promised land. And it's not, you guys. America is not God's promised land. It is another and a long line of Babylons, which will come and pass away to the glory of God. That is what will happen. And the more we tie our church up with the empire, the more we will experience weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth when the whole thing falls. You are not immune from it if you have tied up your world with the empire. That is the message that the writers of Revelation have for you. Um, when we act like this, when we try to claim things for God, spaces, earthly spaces, as those particular places are God's particular place, that is called Christian nationalism. It's the idea that your nation is the promised land, God's city on a hill, and God's special people. When in, in reality, when you do that, you are bastardizing the church. The church is God's people. And the church is not just in one nation. The church is everywhere. And so what do we do with the Christians? What of the Christians who live amongst the cities of Babylon? How do we act? How do we live? Um, in America or Iraq or Afghanistan or Russia or Syria, Christians are everywhere. We are not just in one place. Christianity knows no borders or boundaries. Um, how are we to live in a world where our full kingdom, the kingdom of God, has not yet been revealed to us in our place. A lot of Christians have felt very, very heavily invested in the outcome of the events of Babylon. And a lot of Christians are worried, they are terrified, they are um, anxiety-ridden and stressed out because they are so heavily invested in the empire in which they live. And I understand it. I've never felt more anxiety in my life than this year. Watching humanity sort of devolve into this primal sort of, I've got to get my own and protect myself and my rights above everyone else sort of mentality. Jesus came specifically to save us from that as well. Um... 
A lot of Christians, their, their allegiance to King Jesus has come into competition with their allegiance to Babylon. And Babylon is predestined to fall. It is. We are a separate people. We are to come out from among them and be separate. Um, that is how we are supposed to live. We don't co-rule with any president. We co-rule with Jesus Christ. All of this causes many Americans to scratch their heads in confusion, though, about then what are we supposed to do? What part do we play? Uh, if we show support to candidates, are we usurping the throne of God? How does this work? What do we do? Um, how do we keep from violating the true hierarchy in which God has put us. God directly reigning over his people, us following King Jesus solely and having no competing allegiances. How do we do this? Well, one of the ways the early church thought about themselves is as exiles. Even though they were born into these nations, even though Paul had citizenship, even though Peter had citizenship, they took the identity of exiles in their own land. Um, we, have, we have Peter writing and saying things like this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Um, they did not speak as if they were heavily invested in the nations around them. They made, they made no concerns, really, for the, for the state of Rome for its prolonging or, or, or for its failure. They just were not invested in it. They were invested in planting their own kingdom where they were. They did not speak as if they were heavily invested in all of this. And during all those times, the message that God had for them from their prophets who came in out of the desert and they walked in and they looked at God's people and, and, and prophets like Jeremiah looked at them and said, seek the peace of the place to which you have been carried off in exile. That was the command to a people living in another empire to which they did not belong and did not pledge allegiance to. Seek the peace of those nations and those empires in which, amongst which you live. Seek the peace and the goodness of them. And so we are Americans. We are Christian exiles in the empire of America. The role of the Christian in modern America is no different from the role of the exile in ancient Israel or from the early Christian in the city of Rome in the empire of Rome. The goal of Israel in exile was not to wrestle power away from kings and rulers. It was not to sit in the highest seats of office in the land. It was not to carve a political structure into something that represents a more Israel-like existence. That was not their role. Their role was to remain faithful to God, to speak about who really is their king, and to seek the peace of the people who are there, their flourishing and their goodness. That is their role. We are not attempting to usurp the throne and control the world. We admit that God is in control and we continue to serve the people below us and above us, all of them. Um, their role was to remain faithful to God. The modern church in America must also learn to see itself as Israel in exile. That is how we must think. Some of these passages that we have all through the scriptures. We, have, we are resident aliens, exiles, and sojourners in Philippians 3. Hebrews 13 says, we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. We don't have a lasting city here. They were very clear. You invest in the kingdom. You lay up your treasures in the kingdom of heaven, not in earth. That is what we do here. Any engagement with the empire, whether through judicial or the democratic process, must be rooted deeply in faith by, by the full faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. That is how we must function and move through this world. And there are several ways in which we can do this. I'm going to lay three of them out. There could be, like I've taught leadership classes on politics and cultural engagement. Um, and those classes go for hours. 
And so I'm sort of taking like some of these basic ideas and bringing them together to sort of get your mind thinking about like how, how you are to think about all of this. And so here's a few pieces. I, I have three things sort of that I want you to sort of ponder and think about. Several ways that uh, sort of what I call the exilic approach to cultural engagement. Seeing yourself as a Christian in exile. I'm going to give you three points. First off, um, I'm not sure if they all come up together or not. Anyway, so first off, our concern is for the least, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the ostracized. And you say, well, why? That seems arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. It's exactly the first thing that Jesus said. I come in my ministry to bring good news to the poor, freedom for the enslaved, uh, the, impre- the oppressed. This is the first thing that Jesus says before he starts his ministry. This is our first concern. Even when you're voting, even when you're out there doing cultural engagement, whatever it is that you are doing. <laughs> uh, I think it's weird to call it. When you're doing cultural engagement, as if anyone, what you doing? A little bit of cultural engagement. Don't worry about it. Going to a concert, a bar later, cultural engagement. Um, God has always been on the side of the poor and oppressed. By the way, this is why Christians in America always want to claim persecution. Because we know that God's with persecuted people. And so we have to somehow identify as a persecuted people so that we can know that God's on our side. This is deep inside of us. And if we are not a persecuted people, God is not on your side. Especially if you are persecuting, God is actually against you. And so we can't not talk about how we're being persecuted. Otherwise, we're on the wrong side and our conscience will not let us sleep at night. This is what Christians do. By, but, however, by an accident of birth, we have been granted the ability to vote in elections in the nation in which we live. They shouldn't have done that, but they did. Us Christians can vote. What do we do with that? Um, Here's a few ideas that I always throw out there. That vote should not be used for, for these things. It should not be used, used to secure your own wealth. It should not. Nothing that you have is here to benefit you. It's all here to benefit the kingdom of God. Uh, it should not be used to make your burden lighter, your personal burden. It should be used to lighten the burdens of others who are bearing a heavier burden than you. It should not be used to further solidify your power or place in this world. When that begins to happen, you know you are taking part and partnering with the beast of Revelation. And then you will one day experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, it is wrong. It, I'm sorry. It's, it's not wrong to desire religious liberty. It's not wrong to desire religious liberty. But friends, I have to point out, the Bible says nothing about this. You cannot make this the center of your lifelong fight, religious liberty. The Bible literally says nothing about it, but it says so much about the poor. It says so much about giving of your own rights and your own privilege. And, and the passage we were going to talk about today was Acts chapter 16, where Peter lays down his Gentile identity and becomes more Jewish by being circumcised as a full-on adult. Like, he is laying down some rights. Like, these Christians were willing to do this. If I could summarize the entire book of Romans down into one line, it's, it's, it's this. What are you willing to give up to stay in relationship with these people who you are so different from? That's what the book of Romans is about. Um, second, our concern is for the cross, not the sword. Our method should be neither coercive nor violence. The threat of coercion and violence is not available to the church, despite what you have heard by people who have partnered with the empire. It is not an instrument of change. Not a single person must die for God's will to take place. Not a single gun must be shot for God's will to take place anywhere in the world. 
Not one. Our allegiance to Christ, who has revealed the heart of God to be neither violent nor coercive, and that is, that is who we follow, that is who we worship, and so our methods cannot be violent or coercive. They simply cannot. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite Anabaptist theologians, he says this, he says, a truth that must use violence to secure its existence cannot actually be truth at all. Like, he's right. The truth that we speak is backed up by the cross, by sacrifice, by standing and proclaiming the truth and, and taking whatever consequences come from that only to prove to the world resurrection takes place after true death, after truly pouring yourself out for the world around you. This is how the witness goes forth. So our concern is not for the, cro- uh, for the sword, it is for the cross. We carry the cross as a way of saying we win by losing, we win by pouring ourselves out, we win by serving under, not ruling over. And we are more powerful than the greatest empires in the world because of this. Rome had no idea what to do with the people that were not afraid of death, that would continue spreading the message no matter what came their way. Rome could not combat that at all. Third, lastly, our concern is not for power. The Christian has nothing to do with earthly power. We reject it. We don't need it. We don't care about it. We follow Jesus Christ, who has all the power, all the wealth, all the ability in the world to make things right. And his ways are what we are allegiant to. No other way, no other ruler, no other king. Human beings were not created to wield the power, but to reflect power. We were not created to wield it. We were created to reflect it. It's what we're called the Imago Dei. We are icons that people should look at and know what Jesus is like. And that should terrify us because you know what? A lot of people believe that our Jesus looks like the people who committed the events of this week. Why? Because they were carrying Christian flags and erecting crosses. We're telling them this is what Jesus is like. Every time, every time you allow racism in your heart to continue, every time you allow um, disdain for the poor to rear its ugly head, you are telling the world around you that is what Jesus is like. Jesus does not care about the poor. Jesus does not care about minorities. Jesus does not care about any of these things. Jesus is about power and earthly might and the sword and bludgeoning his enemies. But he's not. That is not who God has revealed himself to be through Christ. And so our concern is not for power. So how, how are we to view power? Well, we look at it the way Jesus displayed it to us. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, do nothing out of selfishness, ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of others. How can he possibly say that? Because that's exactly what he saw in Jesus. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And so we, as Christians, should not be building names for ourselves and amassing power and wealth for ourselves. We are to make nothing of ourselves. I read a quote this week that was like someone was... Talking to pastors, he's like, hey, pastor, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's all. Make Jesus' kingdom great, not yours. 
If we are truly living out the story of Christ and his cross, then we must be willing to offer whatever privilege and power that we have on the altar so that others can flourish. We cannot have it both ways. We cannot have competing allegiances. We cannot claim, I'm a follower of Jesus. My faith, by the word, by the way, the Greek word for faith is the word pistis, which is much more akin to allegiance. You cannot say, I have allegiance in Jesus and I pledge allegiance to the American flag every single week. These things don't go together. They just don't work. One of them is, is, is being set up by God to reign forever through the power of the cross. The other is here to reign temporarily until it is made to fall and rules by coercion and violence and weaponry. These things are not the same. We are a people. We're not just individuals that are doing a thing in an empire. We are a people. We are a surrogate nation, a surrogate people, a surrogate family. We have our own king. We have our own kingdom. Quit fooling around. Why are we wrapping ourselves up in all of this? And tarnishing the name of God. There's this place in the Old Testament where God shows up to Israel. And he basically says, like, I think it's the prophet Ezekiel. Sees the presence of God leaving the temple. And there's this conversation he has with God. And God's like, look, I put you here to represent me in the world. And all of the world thinks I look like you. And I don't. I look nothing like you. And so the presence of God leaves the temple and never comes back again. They even, it gets destroyed, they rebuild it, and they do the whole ceremony. They're dancing and singing with everything they got, and God never shows up again. God never enters that temple again. And they carry on the, the, <clears throat> the events. They do the sacrifices year after year after year after year, all the way into the time of Christ and the Spirit of God in the cloud. Never once again ascends, descends upon the temple. Ever. And it's when Jesus is dying on the cross and the Gentile says, you know, I think this Jewish guy was the Son of God. Son of God, that's a Greek way, a Gentile way of saying king. When he says this, there's an earthquake and the temple rents and opens up and there's nothing in there. As if God has left the building and moved throughout the world. And God is present in us. And we are the physical presence of God in this world. We are the faithful presence of Jesus. We must remember that God is looking at us and thinking, Please represent me well. That is why I have put you here. They think I'm like that, and I'm not. And for too long, we've just been tarnishing the name of Jesus because we're so desperate for power, because we have been immersed in a culture that tells you the only way to bring change is through coercion, backed up by the sword and imprisonment. This is the only way to change things, power and might and strength. Jesus literally showed us the opposite it's as if God said hey when you think of me here's how I want you to think of me like I know for so long you've thought of God as like this powerful cosmic force like some kind of genie like this powerful cosmic force that rules with his might and is terrifying and so I'm going to give you a new way to view me I want you to think of me the all-powerful creator of the cosmos I want you to think of me as um a man who has been beaten senseless, his beard has been ripped out, he's, he's got blood all over him, and he's dragged his own cross up a hill like a, like a dissident, and he's hanging on the cross. So I, when you think of me, I want you to think of a skinny, suffering, beaten, shamed man on a cross. That's how God has given you to view him. That's not, that's not what we've been going for, though. 
when we erect a cross as a symbol of power in this world, I can't imagine that we're communicating the message of Christ, that this is the cross that the empire hung our savior on, thinking this will shut him up. And the cross, the execution device of the Roman Empire, which is the symbol of all Roman strength. This is the only way to get anything done, by threatening you with death. And it has now lost all of its power. That's why Christians carried it, originally. That's like, that's like carrying a, an electric chair around your neck when you wear a cross. It's a symbol of the dissident who doesn't fit in, who doesn't belong, who belongs to another kingdom entirely. We cannot have competing alliances. There, there are no middle spaces of middle ground. The, the only way to reflect the power and privilege of Jesus is by constantly relinquishing it in the service of others. The church should have no allegiance to earthly kingdoms. Our love and our compassion for the citizens of those kingdoms is paramount, though. This is what we are after. Ultimately, our fate, and I'll end with this, our fate is tied up with whatever empire our allegiance lies in. So when you think about what is the fate of you, what is the fate of what is the fate of your brothers and sisters? Well, your fate is wrapped up with the empire in which you have uh, declared allegiance. And so I would hope that your allegiance is in Jesus Christ, the King, whose kingdom will have no end, whose kingdom will reign forever in goodness and peace and glory, instead of the empires of Revelation 18, which will fall and burn and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth nothing will be left they cannot be permitted to stand if the kingdom of God is going to reign and our future is not somewhere else in the sky it is here that has always been the message of God's people it is here restoration of everything it's it's a new city coming down not people going up and so I wanted to throw all this out there for you this morning as you formulate your thoughts on how to interact with the empire I don't put any hope in any administrations. They can't fix what they broke. Only Jesus can. Only the people of Christ can. And only by the methods through which Jesus has given us to heal. The body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ poured out for all of us. And so I'm going to end with that today. I'm going to pray. And then... uh, After that, we'll stand and we'll do our call prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I pray that our king would be the lamb. I pray that our our vision would be solely on Christ. I pray that our kingdom would be the one that is not of this world, but that is coming down. We pray every single day that your kingdom would come down on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that we would be able um, to recapture the goodness of your kingdom again. To embrace that. And when all the, when all the beauty of, of, and the shininess of the empires all fades away, may the church continue to stand as a place of healing and goodness. We love you, Father. We thank you. Worthy is the Lamb and no one else. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and glory forever and ever and ever. In your name.
Amen. Would you guys stand with me and do a collect prayer today? Let's do it nice and loud so that everyone out there can hear the hope that we have. Let's do it. Emmanuel, who became flesh and dwelt with us, be with us in our waiting, in our sorrow, and in our joy as we live within the expectancy of your goodness. Bind our hearts together in unity and peace as we carry your presence in the world, bringing your kingdom to earth. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, I pray that God will go before you and and light the way. Look for what God is doing all around you. Take part in it. Grace and peace. Uh, Let's hang out outside and talk if we will.